Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to live a childhood dream to work for Sports Illustrated? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 103 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after the broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. Monday Night Football is still billed as must-see football, even though nowadays, by the time Monday Night rolls around, many football fans get too tuckered out for the entire game. Regardless, we'll watch, though what we'll hear calling the game will now be completely different than in 2017. After some 144 games, color commentator John Gruden left the booth at the end of the season to take his talents back to coaching and to the Oakland Raiders, and now play-by-play announcer Sean McDonough, who took over as the voice of Monday Night Football for Mike Tirico two years ago, is on his way out too. Sean signed a multi-year extension with ESPN and will go back to calling important college football games, including the college football playoff semifinals. He also said in a press release how much he missed college football and looks forward to returning to the pageantry of the game and telling the stories, blah, blah, blah. Even though New York Post's Andrew Marshan reported that the NFL just wasn't in love with McDonough as the voice of one of its signature properties. Regardless... Let's take a look back to earlier this year when we paid homage to Sean's most important attribute, his voice. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Those sports broadcasters aren't under the same type of pressure as the athletes and the teams they're covering. There's still pressure to make sure that the correct calls are made at the right times. 
That pressure only grows as the magnitude of the game or a specific moment does, and each can either add to the moment or even take away from it. In the National Football League, every game has some form of importance, especially when it comes to national broadcasts. When longtime sportscaster Sean McDonough became just the fifth play-by-play voice of Monday Night Football in favor of Mike Tirico in 2016, football fans were treated with a solid and now recognizable voice to lead them through the games. He's been behind the microphone for MLB contests in college football and basketball games as well and has been fortunate enough to call some familiar sports moments in each of them. In fact, you might remember one of his calls from one of the more exciting finishes of the Michigan State-Michigan rivalry back in 2015 when Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh was in his debut season. Well, he has trouble with the snap, and the ball is free! It's picked up by Michigan State's Jalen Watts-Jackson, and he scores on the last play of the game! Unbelievable! As you most likely heard, there are times when the excitement in Sean's voice is unable to keep up with the excitement of the play itself. Such was the case this past weekend, when the Tennessee Titans squared off at Kansas City in the AFC wildcard game. The Chiefs held a 21-3 lead at halftime and had no business losing the contest. But with six minutes left in the game and the Titans trailing 21-16, the game turned. From the 22, second and 10, Mariota to the goal line, touchdown Tennessee! Then, with under two minutes remaining and the Titans needing one first down to ice the game, the Chiefs were given a miracle. Chiefs really up against it. First and ten, Tennessee. And the ball comes out! The ball has come out! Derek Johnson, the all-time leading tackler in the history of the Chiefs, with a touchdown for Kansas City! Marcus Peters ripped it away from Derrick Henry. Unfortunately, for both the Chiefs and Sean McDonough's voice, the play was ruled dead, as running back Derrick Henry was down. While some giggled like schoolgirls for noticing Sean's voice betraying him, even his own broadcast partner in John Gruden couldn't help but have some fun with it as well. Wacky play to change the course of a game for the season. I was glad your voice didn't crack that time. Yeah, I was two for one. A change in scenery would not provide Sean McDonough with an elixir for his vocal cords. Sean was on call, this time on ESPN Radio, for the college football national championship game between Georgia and Alabama. The ending was thrilling, unexpected, and provided yet another emotional roller coaster for all parties involved. Three receivers right, one to the left, straight back to pass, going deep, throwing it down the far sideline, and it is caught for a touchdown! Devontae Smith wins the national championship down the left sideline and wide open behind the defense. One true freshman to another. Whether a hot cup of tea or a strong cough medicine, 
There's no telling what potion or anecdote would add some Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones to Sean McDonough's voice in place of, say, Tiny Tim or Mariah Carey on New Year's Eve. However, Sean McDonough easily has the last laugh, getting to call our favorite games from behind the microphone while we're subjected to watching them from our couches. And fortunately, McDonough has no shot of overtaking the best voice-cracking broadcaster in sports history. Hall, eight to shoot, Hall, the runner! Loose ball, it's good! With 4.4 to go, Shannon! Don't want to foul! Shannon, from the corner! And it's over! Gonzaga, the flipper still fits! They win it, 73-72! I'm John Lund, for sports news, red like real news. Let's take a quick break to work on our voices. When we come back, we'll talk to a sports writer about breaking into the business, landing his dream job, and what life is like after it. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929 Bridge 7. That's 929 274 3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know who is your favorite broadcaster and why? was the night before madness and threw out all the racket. All the people were frantic to fill out their bracket. The 68 teams were selected with care in the hopes that your favorites all would be there. The mascots were ready to cheer on with glee with visions of trophies that they all might see. And coaches in suits and I in my shorts with pencil in hand to see if I knew sports. When highlights were playing and onions was screamed, I raced to the Google to see what it meaned. Away to the YouTube, I scrolled in such fashion to see what Gus Johnson might scream with his passion. There would be just one winner, all others with loss. We'd hear one shining moment with Luther Van Ross. But when viewing my bracket, did upsets appear? What teams would prove bust or would instigate fear? With Cinderella's dreaming and bus in the mix, I knew in a moment I made the right picks. More no than Lunardi and visions of fame, I picked up my pencil and shouted by name. Now heels, now zags, now Jayhawks and cats. On devils, on cardinals, on mascots with hats. To the top of the region, to the final four, now win in advance and win even more. But from the back, I heard such a clatter, and on the TV was a room full of chatter. There was talk of new stations, I thought, just in jest, but games would be played on True TV and TBS? I flipped through the channels, and after three years, was met with analysis to quiet our fears. On the screen, there was Barkley, spitting out words, calling some teams in the tournament turds. There was Dickie V's passion and Kenny Smith's size. 
and Seth Davis waiting to disprove all lies. Their opinions were honest, but nobody knew if what they were saying would even prove true. There was talk of some coaches and what they had done, the importance of how many titles they'd won. On Izzo, Patino, on Coach K and Cal. Now Roy, now Self, now Jay Wright, our pal. From Thursday through Sunday, we'll anxiously wait to see if our favorites can make the last eight. There'll be upsets and blowouts and really high score, perhaps teams going down in your final four. We'll be glued to the games, but no one's to blame for cheering on teams that you just learned their name. Our slates are now clean, in our picks we trust. Let's say a quick prayer, our brackets won't bust. So make your last tweaks, cross your fingers, you're right. Merry madness to all, and to all a good night. I'm John Lund, for Sports News, read like real news. Now to this week's guest in Jeff Perlman, a New York Times bestselling author of seven books. You might also remember him from Sports Illustrated, ESPN.com, Newsday, and the Nashville Tennessean, and can now see him in The Athletic and contributing for several different places as well, along with his podcast and blog. And based on that intro, there's a good chance you've seen or heard one of Jeff's works, and I certainly fall into that category and can't help but recommend all seven of his books if you're a sports fan and especially a fan of the subjects. But this interview wasn't to chat about Jeff's books, but how he got into sports writing in the first place, from reading Sports Illustrated in the library to even stealing them outside of a neighbor's trash, to eventually living his dream of writing for Sports Illustrated, along with several great tales from that along the way. Jeff really worked his ass off to get to where he is today and certainly learned a lot on the way as well. We'll chat about falling in love with sports writing, getting to Sports Illustrated, writing for Sports Illustrated, leaving Sports Illustrated, the aftermath of that, advice for aspiring writers, and more. You can follow Jeff on Twitter. He's at Jeff Perlman. That's J-E-F-F-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Jeff Perlman. He is a New York Times bestselling author of seven books. You might also remember him from Sports Illustrated, ESPN.com, Newsday, or even the Nashville Tennessean, and can also now see him in The Athletic and other contributing places along the way. Jeff, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm not even exaggerating. A line from a hip-hop song, but I'm, I'm wandering the streets of L.A., Excellent. Well, good timing. The sun is shining probably, or at least starting to set. It's probably a lot warmer than it is in the Northeast. So hopefully you're a little bit more jovial than I might be asking the questions dealing with 20 plus degree weather. Before getting into what you do now and some of the things you've done throughout your career, I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit and start by talking about how you first got inspired to pursue this business. I know that's a story that ranges from early in your childhood to your high school days, but to take us through how this really got started and how you went along the path to become a sports journalist. When I was a kid, I used to go to the, uh, I grew up in Mailpack, New York, a small town, and I used to go to the local library and it was a small, tiny library. And I used to read all the old Sports Illustrated. And then I started reading sports biographies. And I would just read and read and read all these books. And the librarians started holding them for me. Like there was one librarian in particular who would hold the books. And she, they would call me 
and say, okay, Jeff, we have Bo Jackson's new uh, autobiography and we have Ron Git and all these books. And they'd, they'd set them aside. And I would come down, running down to the library, you could grab all the books and just, you know, absorb them, absolutely absorb them. And um, it was like, you know, it sounds corny, but small kid, very conservative, small white town. It was like this sort of education on the world and what was out there and all the things going on. And I was just dazzled by it all. And then, you know, you get to high school, you write your high school paper, you go to University of Delaware, editor of a college paper. And it's just, you know, I always loved writing and I always loved this sort of just the voice you could have and just really did it for me. I don't know. It just really did it for me. It, It always has. It still does. Now, those early SI magazine days, don't those include some garbage picking as well, just so you can get your hands on a couple more magazines oh, from a neighbor? Yeah, of course. I mean, my so my parents would not subscribe to SI because it was pretty expensive. And I got Sport Magazine, which doesn't exist, and it was once, once a month. Uh, but my neighbor, John Daly, um, I don't think he even knew, but he would put out his cartons of old SIs. And I would just walk, whenever I saw them, I'd grab them all, and I would just... They could be five, six, seven years old. They could be weeks old. It didn't really matter. I was just all about reading them. And I was I still have them. I literally in my house I, I have those and I still read them. And it was just again, it was like an education on sports and writing and language and all that stuff. I don't even think I don't think I knew at the time I was being educated. You know, sometimes you just think you're reading. But I, I, I really think in hindsight I was absorbing. One of the interesting parts of the story is that growing up, a lot of kids say that they want to be an astronaut or they want to be a policeman. You actually privied your mother about what you wanted to do when you, quote unquote, grew up and it ended up actually coming true. Can you tell the tale of how you almost predicted what ended up happening to you in your 20s getting to SI? Yeah, I just, you know, when I was I was in uh, I think I was in junior high. And I still remember it. I mean, I told my mom, I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated one day. And she was like, no, nah, you know, you should be a lawyer. You know, you can be a doctor. There are a lot of things you can be. Uh, and I think to her, being a sports writer, it just seemed really foreign. You know, I did not come from a sports family at all. I was the only one involved in sports. And I just think it seemed like something other people did. You know, it wasn't touchable and it wasn't tangible. Um but I knew it. I really did. I swear to God, I knew I I just really wanted it. So when I was actually hired by Sports Illustrated, I'd spent two years at the National Tennessean. And then one day I got a call from SI and they offered me a job. And it was one of the great moments of my life. And I remember calling my mom. And I still do remember sitting in this chair in my apartment in Nashville, a one bedroom apartment in Nashville, and calling my mom and being like, I told you, I told you. And it wasn't like vindictive. I was never mad at my mom. I had a great mother, but it was just like, I, I knew I was going to do it. And it was really, I just, when you set your mind to something and you actually accomplish it, I mean, it doesn't happen that often in life like that, but when it does, it's just so freaking magical. Before getting into the SI days, you mentioned writing for your college newspaper and in a sense got thrown into the fire into that world and were given a lot of responsibility and had the opportunity to cover a lot of things that maybe other people didn't get the chance to, including a a basketball team that didn't do too shabby, at least in making the NCAA tournament back in the early 90s. Is there something that sticks out to you from that process either something that you learned or something that you learned from, from those days of getting to write in your college newspaper before moving on into what's called, I guess, the real world. 
Oh man. I mean, my days, it was called the review, the university of Delaware reviewers twice weekly. Um, I can't think of a time period of my life that was more important. Uh, number one, you know, it's funny. I really wanted to go to Penn state and I didn't get in. And then I really wanted to go to Syracuse and it was too expensive. So I went to Delaware and, um, the thing about going to a non-journalism power is, at least in this case, I got to write immediately. I got to cover stuff. I was a sophomore covering men's basketball, um, covering football, you know, things that you, if I, you go to Syracuse, you're lucky if you're, you're covering swimming and diving your junior year. So, so that, that was really good. You know, Delaware made the NCAA tournament, the Delaware Blue Hens made the NCAA tournament the first time when I was um, ever, first time ever when I was a, a, a sophomore. And I remember they played Drexel for the, for the chance to go to the NCAA tournament. And I was sitting courtside in our crappy gym at Delaware's, a small gym at the time, a field house. And I just remember the pure euphoria of knowing I was going to go to the NCAA tournament and cover it. And that it was this, these kids who you took classes with and these guys you knew. And they were, none of them were going to go to the NBA. I mean, one of them was drafted, this guy Spencer Duncan, but no one was going to go to the NBA. But he was just, it was just magical. It really was. And then they went to the NCAA tournament and they got Cincinnati in the first round with Nick Van Exel and Corey Blount. And they lost by 38 points. And it was, it was ridiculous, but it was still just thrilling. It was just like you're walking around and you're seeing all your heroes, all your writing heroes and this tw- in you know, Dayton arena. And you're like, I'm here. I can't believe I'm here. It's just unbelievable. Do people also realize that while you were in college, you were also a division one athlete? I mean, I wasn't a good one. I was a terrible. Div- I was, so I ran cross country and track at Delaware for a year and I was very lucky. There was a coach named Jim Fisher, who's just a great coach. And he wanted, if you were willing to put in the work, he would take a chance on you. So I had to be one of the hundred worst division one runners my freshman year of college. I mean, I got my ass kicked nonstop repeatedly. Um, but for me, I always say it was a really valuable experience uh, because I hung in there. You know, I'm, I'm a real fan of like hanging in there and not quitting and trying your best. So every meet I was getting destroyed. I mean, I was not a division one level runner, but I was getting destroyed, but I kept coming back, kept coming back. And it was one of the great experiences of my life. You know, the people I met and sort of running these courses and running against really high level division one runners and just gauging yourself by hanging in there with them. You mentioned hanging in, and I'm sure that probably happened a couple times along the way while you were at the Nashville Tennessean. First, breaking into the business in a sense, having to uproot yourself and, and move and be on your own. And I believe you started food and fashion, if I remember correctly. So it wasn't even sports. So you're trying yep. to find these stories about stuff that you might not be as familiar about. As a young writer, I know I was sort of like this as a young writer. You sort of think you know everything and don't necessarily. <laughs> necessarily listen as well as you might need to from somebody that can teach you how to do something a little bit better. Is there something that you took from the Nashville Tennessean or your early writing days in general that you feel prepared you for Sports Illustrated or got you ready for that next step in your career? Well, the Tennessean was an amazing educational experience. It was two and a half years. I moved there, I think, six days after graduating from college. I didn't really know anyone. I mean, I had interned there, so I knew people. But I didn't have friends. Um, I was insufferable. I was as big a, uh, an idiot as you could find at any newspaper at any point in the history of newspaper. I was the kid who was, had been editor of his college newspaper and thought that meant something. 
I was a kid who thought he was a great writer, but really didn't know anything about writing. I had no reporting skills whatsoever. I made one mistake after another, after another. I would not take advice from anybody. Um, the worst, it's kind of funny. Sometimes I teach uh, journalism and sometimes I'll have students who are kind of like that and they really bother me. And my wife will say they bother you because they are you. Uh, you see them and you, you see yourself 20 years ago. It's really true. And what happened, one of the things that really saved my career is I was, um, I was just a, your classic screw up. I kept making mistakes. I couldn't get out of my own way. And my editor, a woman named Catherine Mayu, put me on the cop's beat. She said, we're taking you off of features and you're going to go on the cop's beat. And she wanted me to sort of just think about and focus upon who, what, where, when, how, and why. Stop trying to be fancy. Stop trying to turn a quick phrase. Stop trying to impress people all the time with your non-genius. Like, just report. Just be a reporter. And um, that time period on cops was a, you know, a real seismic shift for me as a, as a reporter and, and gave me some humility. I still needed more, but it gave me the humility that, that I definitely did not have at that point. And should have. For some of the younger listeners, I don't know if they realize just how big Sports Illustrated once was. It still is big, but at the yeah. time, that was the magazine. That was the place, if you were in sports and wanted to write, that was sort of the end goal and where you wanted to land. And now it doesn't have that same clout just because there's so many other things you can do in the sports world. But it wasn't like it would be for maybe a local newspaper where you could sweep the floors and then work in the mailroom and then eventually they might give you something to write about. You really had to prove yourself, in a sense, just to even get noticed by them. And I think your story of how you eventually got hired by Sports Illustrated, the piece itself, is quite interesting because you were a track and field and cross-country athlete, but people might not also realize there was a small chance you could have made it in the NBA. <laughs> well, when I, so when I was at Delaware, my junior year, I applied for the NBA draft. I, uh, I sent a letter. It wasn't, I, I always have to say this. It was not my idea. There was a sports editor a year before me named uh, Alan Nanasinkum. And he said, you know, I'm going to, I should apply for the NBA draft. And then he never did it. And I always thought it was a good idea. So I did it. And I sent a letter to the NBA uh, surrendering my future eligibility in basketball. And this is before Google and you could search and find Delaware's roster in eight seconds. It, it just wasn't the same way. So I sent a letter. Didn't really think that much of it. And a couple of weeks later, maybe I get a, I get a note from the NBA and my roommate one day is like, Hey, Pearl, he just called me Pearl. He's like, Hey, Pearl, uh, there's a letter for you on an NBA stationery or an uh, envelope. And I opened it. It was an NBA saying, um, basically we received your letter and, uh, you are entering the NBA draft and blah, 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 blah. And, and then I was home a few weeks later and I got a call from the NBA's director of security asking, you know, basically who the hell are you? And I was like, well, you know, I'm a basketball player at Delaware. And I did play intramurals. I was on Edna's Edibles at the University of Delaware. So it wasn't a total lie. And, and he's like, all right, well, you know, I hope you know what you're doing because we're putting you in the draft. So I wrote a column about it for my college paper, not much else. And then uh, when I was applying to Sports Illustrated, um, the, one of the editors there uh, named Bambi Wolf said, um, we need to see, we want, you know, we want to see s stories by you. So why don't you pitch some ideas? And I pitched some boring idea about a swimmer and some boring idea about a, about a coach. And then I said, well, you know, when I was at Delaware, I applied for the NBA draft. And they were like, really? And I was like, yeah, this is what happened. And they said, write that. And my first ever byline in SI was, uh, was a story about my applying for the NBA draft. 
we mentioned off air that I hope to down the road be able to speak to you about the seven books you wrote. If I did that now, we'd have to be on for three hours, unfortunately. But in those books, if anyone has read them, they'll see many, many different people quoted. And it's not just from newspaper articles where someone else may have gotten the quotes. You go to hundreds of people in all walks of life to get different vantage points for the story you're writing. And if I remember correctly, that's sort of what you did to get noticed at Sports Illustrated, reaching out to colleges all over the country, not so much for tell me the story about your star basketball player or your star football player. I want to know more about the swimmer that might have been born without part of their leg and they won X championship. The stories that no one really wanted to tell. Was that when that part of your writing started? You being curious enough to reach out to the farthest depths of where a story might be told and just get all the information you possibly can to make something click. Well, it's funny. When I was a kid, um, my dad was a, a headhunter. He ran, he ran an executive search firm. And um, he used to hire me and my brother to go in and sort of type letters and send them out. And it would just be one letter after another, after another, after another, after another. And I think in a weird way, I found something kind of soothing in the never-ending dogginess of it, you know? And sort of my same way when I got to Sports Illustrated. So literally, we used to work four days. I, I started there as a fact checker which basically is, you know, the writers would send in their stories and you would check the facts and make sure everything was right. And that was a four day, we had a four day of work week, uh, four days per week work week. And I would always take one or two extra days and sneak back into the office. And there used to be a book called the Cosida directory, which was, uh, it listed every sports information director in the country, uh, alphabetically by school. And I would just call, I would start, you know, whatever, Abilene Christian, Auburn, Alabama, Auburn, call these schools, one after another, after another, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm really trying to sort of make my way here at SI. Do you guys have any story ideas that I could pitch? And I always say, but I don't want, like you said, I don't want the running back who's gaining a thousand yards. I want the one-armed swimmer. I want the five foot two soccer star. Uh, and, and I would, you know, come to meetings armed with a gazillion weird stories, like funky stories from Delaware state and Trenton and, you know, UC Irvine and just all these random schools. And it really sort of put me, I think, put me on the right path at SIO. This is a guy who's willing to work and who sees things in a kind of a unique way. So if people were to Google your name and Sports Illustrated, I would guess that the two main faces that would come up for people you have written about would be David Wells and then before <laughs> that, John Rocker. And I know you've yeah. talked about this in the past about how John Rocker is your money story in a sense. Anyone that's written something or writes for a living usually has one or two tales that everybody sort of puts as them and references them by. And John Rocker, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, is that for you. And instead of having you spend the 15 minutes it'll probably take to tell that story in full, I guess I'm more interested to know once people found out the truth behind it, because we know John Rocker was a little bit vocal about how he felt about you once the story came out, and it took a while for you to be able to tell what actually happened or that you didn't fabricate anything. This was how he yeah. just was as a person. Was that refreshing in a sense, or, or what was the feeling like just to let everybody know, like, hey, I didn't make any of this up. This is just how this guy is. 
Well, I don't think uh, I don't think there was ever much. I don't think many people were ever like, oh, this look at look, John Rocker, like he's such a beacon of virtue. How did you how dare how dare this guy? I mean, I think Rocker has repeatedly shown himself to be sort of a Neanderthal, you know, and a dunderhead. So um I never really felt the need to feel vindicated. Um the one thing I I, I will say is there have been times not recently, but there were times when I felt guilty about it. You know, in the immediate aftermath. Uh, Rocker got demoted. He got fined. He became, you know, this, he was publicly ridiculed. Uh, you know, SNL, uh, you know, Will Ferrell did a really good impersonation of, of him. And I actually felt uh, bad for him and somewhat guilty. Not that I, not that I wrote the story wrongly. I don't think I did, but that, you know, this guy's life was kind of crapped on, um, you know, and I sort of, I struggled with that for a long time, not in any major way. This isn't a sob story, but it just really kind of burdened me for a long time. And what actually happened is through the years, every four or five years, John Rocker would sort of pop his head out of nowhere. And someone would ask him about that. And, you know, he called me at one point, he called me your typical Jew reporter. Uh, another time he said that really we were just talking about, you know, whatever the diplomatic relations between foreign governments about, you know, like, it was always so preposterous and so outlandish that after a while I just sort of was, you know, let it go. But it was, a, it's weird when you write something and that story impacts someone in such a negative way. Even if you find that person objectionable and grotesque, there is something weird about it. And I'd never experienced that before. So I kind of had to just get past that, I guess. We mentioned what Sports Illustrated was at its peak, as in how many different sports writers or just sports savants in general were in that building and working for that magazine. And I'm sure throughout the years you have several examples of being able to work with people that maybe you viewed as mentors or some writers that you admired. I know you got to cover baseball and hang around with Tom Berducci and Rick Riley, of course, was there for many years. The atmosphere of that work environment, did you have mentors or did those guys inspire you in a sense with your writing? Was it something like you were almost competing with them in a sense to keep up? How was it for you just being able to write for Sports Illustrated in general, surrounded by those other writers? All right. So that's a great question because um, I've used this analogy before. So I, I became a, uh, I don't know if it was a staff writer or senior writer. Those are the two main writing positions like that. I, I, I reached that pretty young. I was like 26, I think. And what they used to do, and this is going to make sort of modern journalists just like, ah, wrong. I'm in the wrong era. Every holiday season, they would fly in every writer from around the country and have a state of Sports Illustrated sort of three-day whatever. And they would take you out for these really lavish lunches. And you'd be at a table and it would be whatever, you and Rick Riley and William Knack and Steve Russian and Jack McCallum, just as these heavyweights of writers. And, and they would, I remember the first time they had a, they would have a meeting where the editors would to the head editors would talk to all the writers. I just remember sitting there being surrounded by all these guys uh, and some women, it was, it was tragically sort of undiverse and, and, and gender, you know, heavy leaning toward, toward men. That's another story, but surrounded by these, these gods of sports writing. And I always, I, I've always thought, it must have been how Christian Leitner felt on the 92 dream team, you know, when they let on one college kid like that was, I was Leitner, but not even Leitner. I wasn't even at that level. Um, and it was like, you know, like 
Tom Verducci, anyone will tell you, Tom is like, he's a great guy, but he's not Mr. Warm and Fuzzy. Like, he's a business writer. He goes out there and it's all business. And for me, covering World Series with him, all-star games with him, being at playoffs with him, it was an, a PhD level education. I mean, I watched him like a freaking hawk. I really did. And I would watch him work a locker room, uh, work a press box, what he was doing. He wasn't going to sit there and guide you and nurture you. And and I, I don't think he should have. Like, he wasn't my babysitter. He was there to do a job. I think I learned more from watching Tom Verducci than any other writer I've ever observed because he was just so professional and so meticulous in what he did. I mean, he's he's one of the great. I will never listen to a Tom Verducci writing criticism if they exist and take it seriously because he's as good as it gets. He really is. What I think is one of the unique things of your writing is it's very blunt, especially with the truth. And it's even more blunt in your books because you're able to use some language that obviously the AP style would frown upon. But it's interesting that whatever is the truth to a story, you have no problem telling it. And in the past, that's led to, we mentioned John Rocker, some athletes would get angry about things, they would confront you about things. And that happens with a lot of people that are in this business. But in general, it's not always something that's easy to deal with. When you're telling a story, even if it's truthful, there might be criticisms. And especially now with social media, there's criticisms every day, even if you go to a pizza place and and order the wrong pie. So there's just always going to be people buzzing and, and not being happy with your work, especially sometimes with the people you're covering. How long did it take you to find the confidence in your writing, to be able to tell a story, know that it's good enough and true enough, and not have to worry that the outside noise maybe might make you think that what you're doing wasn't truthful? All right, so I've never, um, I'm your classic, like, insecure, like, I'm very insecure about, like, every book I write, my wife and I have this ritual, you know, she'll read every book I write before I hand it in. And I'll always be like, it sucks. This is awful. I know this isn't good. And she'll just roll her eyes and be like, okay, but I'm being serious. Like there are very few things I write where I'm like, oh, that's great. Like I I tend to think it's, it's kind of sucks and it's not good. And then over time you kind of warm to it. Some people tell you they liked it. That changes your, your mood in a good way. Um, but I've never been, I don't think I've ever been overly concerned with the perception, uh, in the way you're talking about it. Like, the one, I will say the one thing that has bothered me, and it's still, maybe I take that back, because the one thing that has bothered me and still does a little bit, just as far as the whole writing game goes, you know, I wrote the John Rocker story, and then through the years I've written, you know, I wrote Walter Payton's biography, I wrote Barry Bonds' biography, then I wrote books about the 90s Cowboys and the 86 Mets, uh, and people would say, Perlman has a way of, he's a way of doing this, you know, oh, he's, he's always going for the scandal and he's going for the controversy and and blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of that comes off of sort of the rocker background. And I would say like, what, what am I supposed to do here? Am I supposed to write a biography of Walter Payton, just as an example? And you find out that he had an out of wedlock son who lived very close by, who he had nothing to do with. Am, Am I supposed to write about Walter Payton, a definitive, definitive biography and not write about that? You know, are you, are you just supposed to leave these things out? Um, and and then they'll say like, oh, well, you write about 86 match or the 90s Cowboys wild teams. Well, I'm writing about them because, number one, they were really, really good. And number two, they were really, really entertaining. You know, I, th- I think if you read my books about these teams, I'm never condemning them. I'm never saying this is horrible behavior. Or they should be ashamed of themselves. I, I feel like it's almost always viewed like um, 
like these guys look back like it was their best fraternity days, you know, and what a great time we had. And it was so fun. If someone wants to pay me to write a book about the uh, 1998 Cleveland Browns, I mean, I, I guess I'll do it. But I just think I write about these teams because they're really entertaining and they were really fun and they were really successful. Same with athletes. I write about Barry Bonds because he was a, a huge figure in sports. He was an important figure in sports. He was a controversial figure in sports. I mean, these are interesting people and they're historic figures in sports. So that's why I write about them. So they're not writing about guys to ruin their lives or ruin their reputations, anything but. What made you decide to leave SI and branch out on your own? Or when did you know maybe so that it was time to leave? Um, I had a moment, actually. I was, uh, this dates me now. I was covering the uh, 2001 World Series between the Yankees and the Diamondbacks. And I, I, I remember this. It was, I was in a press box with Tom Berducci and Steve Canella, who's now an editor at SI. And I can't remember what game it was. Maybe it was game two or three. I don't remember. But it was um, early on, I was having like bad stomach pains. I don't know what it was, raw sushi or something, but really bad stomach pains. Bad sushi, not raw sushi. And um, I took the subway home to my apartment where I was with my then girlfriend. She's now my wife. And I remember watching the game. We watched the rest of the game. And it was a game where either Brosis or Jeter hit an extra innings home run off of Kim to win the game. And it was a great classic World Series game. And I was insanely happy not to be there. Like, I was happy not to be at a great World Series game. Because I didn't want to deal with the, you know, the, the post-game scrum, all the stupid TV questions, having to dodge camera, you know, the, the TV cameras that are going to bite you in the head. Um, I just, I was so happy not to be there. And I actually, I, I just remember thinking like, if you don't, if you're a baseball writer, you're a sports writer and you don't want to be covering one of the all time great world series games, um, maybe it's time to step away. And that was actually, I actually left and took a job for a year at Newsday writing long non-sports features. And then, and that's when I really started getting into the book world and, and left Newsday and started doing books full time. Was that transition difficult for you, or was it just a matter of maybe abiding your time from, I usually put this much effort into a story or a long-form story that I'm doing, I just have to multiply that by, say, 20, because I have to fill a 300-plus page book? You know, I'd say the difficult part was uh, ego a little bit. Like, you're, I was 29 years old. I was, I was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. That carried a lot of weight back then. You know, it was, a, it was kind of a... You, you enter a, a, a clubhouse with your SI media badge and you, you're kind of the man, whether you deserve it or not. I, I, I wasn't really very worthy of it, but like you're kind of the man and you, you get access and you get exposure and you need Gary Sheffield for two days. Have, you know, sure, you, we'll find time for you. And all of a sudden, you're not. You're just a guy. You know, you're, you don't have that same thing. And, and again, it's stupid. It's really stupid and it's embarrassing that that stuff matters. But when you're young and, and kind of in the business, that stuff matters to you. So I think the hardest part for me wasn't the editorial. It was just adjusting to being an ex-SI writer and not a current SI writer. I had a very long list of potential tell me these stories or this story just from getting to hear some of the podcasts that you've done throughout the years or different posts and different articles ranging from Sal Fasano being one of your favorite baseball players to <laughs> Love Sal. Rodney Dangerfield being naked in a hotel room and having to do a story on him. And the list goes on and on. And unfortunately, we don't have, again, three plus hours to share them all. Is there a story that 
you wish you got to write, whether that's from someone that's now deceased or someone that you just couldn't get in contact with? Is there one now that you might have at the tip of your tongue that you can think of that you really wish you got to chance to cover whatever that might be? Yeah, I'll tell you the guy who has always fascinated me historically is um, Gerald Ford. As weird as that sounds, uh, I'm really a political sort of nut and a, and a buff. You know, I love reading political biographies. I always just thought Gerald Ford was such a fascinating figure. Um, considering he came in post-Watergate, the Nixon pardon, um, losing the election to Carter by the slimmest of margins, uh, which he wouldn't have lost if he didn't pardon Nixon, but he always was steadfast about it. Uh, you know, I'm a very liberal guy, but I have so much respect for Ford and the way he conducted himself. I just always thought that would be, I don't think five people would buy a Gerald Ford biography written by me. So I'm not kidding myself here. Um, but I do think it's a, it would be a fascinating thing to dig deep into. So it's not a sexy answer, but that's what I got for you. That would be a very interesting read. And maybe you could be the biographer of ex-president because there are people that just write about one certain president. So maybe that could sure. be our next calling after sports, move into the presidential reign of things. I'll take it. I'd be happy to. So right now, aside from what you do freelance and what you do book writing, there's also a couple things you do to just sort of chat about journalism, chat about writing, chat about life in a sense. There, well, there's three different things. You do a podcast with your wife talking about being parents and, and just living and different things that happen to you on a day-to-day -day basis. You do two writers slinging Yang podcasts where you obviously chat with other writers about what they might do in the industry and how they got to where they are today. There's also the quaz where you take time to do a question and answer session of sorts with different people of all different walks of life. What's made you that interested in that side of, I guess, reporting and, and giving back in a sense to be able to not only tell someone's story, but do it in a different fashion than what you might do in a book? You know, I just, uh, I really like hearing people's stories. You know, I, it's funny. I recently had, um, I recently had dinner with a guy who's a journalist and he wouldn't shut up. He just kept talking and talking and talking nonstop the whole night, would not shut up, kept talking. And I remember thinking, how is this guy a journalist? Like the whole beauty of the game is that you get to listen to people and ask questions and hear about their experiences. Um, so for me, all those things you just you just mentioned, it's just a really cool chance to sort of exchange ideas and hear what a person is and hear how they got to where they are. I just I'm, I'm a sucker for that stuff. I really am. I'm, you know, I've driven many relatives crazy by always asking the waiter what's the grossest thing you've ever seen, or getting in an elevator and asking someone about you know, whatever something from their life. I just I I just. I'm probably really annoying in that regard, um, but I just I really find it interesting. So the opportunity to do it uh, and and turn it into something for me is kind of cool. So there's no money involved. It's just kind of joy for me. I do benefit from the journalists that do like to talk, though, because then they come on the show and we could fill 40 minutes sometimes of just them being able to put great answers together. So I do appreciate that. But right, I know but where you're coming from. <laughs> here's the, the thing I really mean, though, is like. The people who just go on and on and on right. and on and on drives me free. Like, I I'm being serious about this. I am not that interesting of a person. I am fully aware of that, and I'm totally comfortable with that. I have two kids. I write for a living. It's all good. I have this charmed life. It's great. But the firefighter, the teacher, the rapper, man, I want to hear those stories. The mortician, I just think there are really interesting people out there 
who I'd rather hear than me. I have two more to close with you. And the first one involves your children and your wife as well. And, and now that other chapter of life that you've held for about two decades of a family person that's married and has two children and has been able to experience life now with them in it and it not necessarily being maybe as busy as it was, though I know book writing is still obviously busy and takes up a ton of time, especially when they say that you have to write it by X date. That helps. But in general, for you, you're very open about conversations that you have with your wife, conversations that you have with your children, what they mean to you as a father and as a husband and as a person. How much have they changed your life? Just to make that a a broader question, I guess, in a sense, instead of getting into specifics, just the day-to-day of things, having them there with you along with this journey, instead of just being in a single apartment, maybe grinding away at a magazine, you now get to not only do what you like to do writing-wise, but experience it with them as well. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I always say, you know, there are only a couple of people in this business who I really have trouble with. And a couple of, you know, guys like Jason Whitlock, Skip Bayless, uh, Stephen A. to a certain degree. And I always I always think to myself, like, do you not have kids? And maybe they don't. I guess a lot of them don't. Like, because I feel like when you have kids, it, I just talked about this with Chris Ballard at SI recently. Like, it changes you because you realize it doesn't, all this stuff, it's not that important. Like, when I was a young writer at Sports Illustrated or at the Tennessean, and someone changed something I wrote. I would flip out because I had no perspective on it. And I know it sounds cliche, but it's really true. Like today's brilliant piece of writing, it's just thrown out tomorrow. Nobody gives a crap out, you know, a day later. Um, and it just changes your perspective. It really does in, in weird and crazy ways. It, ge- it gives you more empathy. Uh, it, it opens your eyes to things. You realize like you're not the most important person in your world anymore. Um, and Ballard said, you know, he said it's made him a better writer. And I, I would say the same for me. I just think it, 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 because it, it reminds me this stuff isn't that important. And if I write a bad column for the athletic or one of my books doesn't sell quite as well, I'm, I'm really, I am disappointed, but I'm not crushed the way I was. Cause I, I just know there are more, it's kind of more important things out there. It's not that big a deal. The last one for you, your students get the benefit of getting to hear this from you in person, and there are different places that people can read this from you in person, but is there one main takeaway or maybe two takeaways that you can give any young journalist or young writer that might want to attempt to get into this business some not-so-serious advice, but some good advice in general that you can share with them as to how they might be able to succeed or at least a couple steps toward doing so? I'll give you two that pop in my head. Number one, there's a beautiful thing. So Twitter is a nightmare and a million times over, but there are some beautiful things with it. And the number one is you can reach out to anyone. So, because I remember like being a young writer, you know, in college, and I'd be writing letters to writers. Now, if you want to reach Chris Ballard or Lee Jenkins or me or, you know, whoever, John Wertheim or Sally Jenkins, like all you got to do is tweet at them and there's a really good chance they're going to see it. And there's a really good chance they're going to write back. And that's an amazing thing. Like the, the ability to sort of have your stuff seen and to make yourself, your, your voice noticeable. I think it's a million times better than it was when I was coming up. So if you really, if your dream is to write for the Washington Post, well, there are 200 writers, editors from the Washington Post on Twitter right now. 
reach out to them. Why, I mean, I don't know why people don't take more advantage of that medium. And I always tell my students that, and they look at me kind of blankly. Um, the other thing is, I always say, and this is kind of relates to sports. If you're a college writer, if you're writing to your college paper, even your high school newspaper, there should never be, you should never cover a game and your lead is Delaware beat Towson 28-23 Thursday behind 300 yards passing from whoever, whoever. Like, show me the blood, you know? Show me the limp. Show me the tattoo. Show me the sweat pouring down a guy's face. Uh, show me the pain of a tackle that broke a guy's leg. Take shots. Take chances. You, it may, may not work. Maybe 30% of the time will be a total disaster. But you're better off at least giving it a shot. Like, every, every clip is an audition for you. So don't waste them. Don't just go easy. Don't just go weak. Like, find ways to make your stuff jump off the page. It's not always going to work out, but it's always worth it, the effort. And your next book for people interested is something you've been teasing here and there. It will revolve around the United States Football League, the USFL, mm -hmm. for people that didn't know what that stood for. Is yeah. there a time frame of when people might expect that to start coming into print and where they'll start seeing you making the rounds for it? Yeah, well, it's coming out September. And um, it's already available on Amazon. It's called Football for a Buck. But it's uh, it's coming out in September. So, uh, yeah, it's a long time coming. I'm really into this one. This is my most fun book I've ever worked on. So Excellent. Looking forward to that and hopefully talking about all of your books down the line as well. But it has been a pleasure so far, Jeff, just to get to know more of your story and how you got into this business and how you worked your way through it to get to where you are today. And I encourage people to check out some of the things that you've written, see if some of the early bumpers that you told many of these tales on is still available. I know the time is running short with that, but there's still plenty of avenues that people can find some of your stories that you've written and told, and hopefully they can do that as well. But I think we were able to at least scratch the surface of some of the different things you've been to. And I really do appreciate you taking some time to tell some of the stories. It was great hearing them firsthand again. No, thank you so much. And, and the research is really impressive. Like those are really good questions. I really appreciate it. I'm just saying I, uh, Usually you do interviews and it's a lot of broad questions. That, that was really, it's very flattering. So thank you so much. Thanks again to Jeff for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with a special edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and host for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, so he holds the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will recap the 2018 Oscars and offer up the biggest takeaways from the night. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Duke Mish, that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The Oscars, the Super Bowl of movies, came and went without a hitch this time. 
Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway walked onto the stage at the 90th Academy Awards, read the Best Picture winner, The Shape of Water, and then exited stage left. The show ended the way it had for years before the La La Land Moonlight debacle of 2017. Despite the lack of controversy, there was still a lot of entertainment and powerful messages to be had. That being said, it also had its stale moments during the almost four-hour runtime. Here are my biggest takeaways from the 2018 Oscars. Let's go to the tape. Predictability. Whatever happened to predictability? For the past three years, I've written the Oscar column for the Times Tribune, a local newspaper, in which I give my predictions for a certain number of categories. This year, I picked 8 out of 10 correctly. That's 80%. Let's just say I usually hover around the 60% range. Although I picked more categories in the previous two years, this year was more clear-cut across the board. Sam Rockwell, Allison Janney, Gary Oldman, and Francis McDormand were all the favorites in the acting categories, and they all won. Guillermo del Toro and The Shape of Water, with its 13 nominations, were the frontrunners for Best Director and Best Picture, and they won. Pixar's Coco also easily won the animated category. I hate to knock the ceremony for being predictable, but it was predictable. I even got both screenplay categories right, and they're usually tough for me. The presenters were more so confirming what we already knew, instead of shocking us. The one upset. Whoa! One of my favorite parts of the Academy Awards is the musical performances of each nominee for Best Original Song. Such powerful music capped by Kiala Settle's stirring performance of frontrunner This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. Everything seemed to go according to plan, as the Academy usually positions the winner in the last spot to roll right into the award. This Is Me also won the Golden Globe. But Coco's Remember Me busted everyone's bracket, taking home the trophy. I believe Remember Me should win because it is the heart of Coco, and The Greatest Showman has better songs than This Is Me. I've got to give you props, Academy. You made the right call here. The failed stunt. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel decided to gather some stars from the evening's festivities, including Mark Hamill and Gal Gadot, to walk across the street to surprise people seeing a screening of A Wrinkle in Time. There were hot dog guns and many snacks to be had. But you could tell from the beginning this wasn't going to have a great payoff. It would just add to the runtime. I'm sure it was the thrill of a lifetime for this movie-going audience, but watching it was painful. Kimmel threw a microphone in Mike Young's face as chaos ensued in the theater. To top it off, he was given a novel to read to announce the next presenters, during which he pronounced Tiffany Haddish's name wrong. I don't blame you, Mike. I probably would have messed up too on that stage. I blame the stunt itself. It just didn't work. Luckily for the show, Haddish and Maya Rudolph made us quickly forget about the movie theater debacle with a great and humorous presentation. Kobe! Kobe! Laker legend Kobe Bryant won his first Oscar for his animated short film, Dear Basketball, which he wrote and narrated. This gives him one more Oscar than the Big Diesel, and you could take that to the bank. Your move, Shaq. Long overdue. Finally! Legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins finally got his Oscar after 14 career nominations. He knocked the gorgeous Blade Runner 2049 out of the park to seal the victory. Well deserved. Kumel Nanjiani. 
The writer of Oscar-nominated The Big Sick, Kumail Nanjiani shined in the spotlight with his blend of humor while giving a powerful message. He was a presenter with Lupita Nyong'o and was part of a montage of interviews where different actors, directors, and writers discussed the importance of diversity in film. I really like this guy, and if you haven't seen The Big Sick yet, give it a watch. You won't be disappointed. Your heart was in the right place. Part of what made the Oscars and the 2017 movie season shine was the push toward diversity in race and gender. There were a lot of great speeches, great montages, powerful musical performances. This is what we need, not only in Hollywood, but also in society. Emma Stone, however, took it a step too far when she announced the nominees for Best Director, saying, These four men and Greta Gerwig created their own masterpieces this year. Gerwig became just the fifth female nominee in the Best Director category for her work in Lady Bird. Kudos to Stone for hammering the point home. We do need more female directors, but her statement would make you think the category's nominees were four white men and Gerwig. That was not the case. In fact, it was pretty diverse. Jordan Peele became the fifth black director to earn a nomination. Guillermo del Toro, the night's winner of the trophy, is Mexican. And Christopher Nolan and Paul Thomas Anderson are white guys, but I think it would have been a better play to recognize the diversity of the category. Point out Gerwig, Peele, and del Toro. Lack of female representation in Hollywood is a huge issue, but diversity is just as important. Francis McDormand. <laughs> Maybe the most memorable moment from the evening came when Frances McDormand got the mic after earning her second career Oscar for her leading role in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. First of all, great performance. But what it led to was more important. I'm hyperventilating a little bit here, she said. If I fall over, pick me up, because I've got some things to say. She started by recognizing U.S. Olympian Chloe Kim's incredible gold medal performance in the halfpipe, thanked her husband, Joel Cohen, and her adopted son, Pedro. Then she got to the meat of her speech, where she asked all the female nominees to stand up and be recognized, telling Meryl Streep that if she stands, they'll all do it. McDormand got them all on their feet as she rattled off almost every job in Hollywood and let out a celebratory laughter to honor all these women. As the room settled down, McDormand said, Look around, ladies and gentlemen, because we all have stories to tell and projects we need financed. So powerful, so memorable. I hope that speech plays a role in women's growth in Hollywood. To honor McDormand and her message, I'll leave you with the same two words she ended her speech with. Inclusion writer. Sexy. Check! Good. Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. 
In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.